0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Father, thank you for the time that we have to gather here at this church and to study your word. and. Our desire is that we would be prepared by the ministry of the Word of God to do the works of service that you have gone ahead of us to prepare that we should walk in them. Lord, you work both sides of the equation. You get us ready for those good works and you get those good works ready for us and, and then you match them together uh, and it could be years away. Um, and so you're a very wise God to plan ahead and to prepare us and we might be in conversations Uh, very soon or four years from now with um with people who need to hear the truths we're about to talk about and so i pray that you would give me a supernatural clarity and all of us uh, an eagerness to learn and to have our minds and hearts shaped by the word of god and so uh, grace us with your presence now with the power of the holy spirit we pray in jesus name amen So we are in the middle of the handout from last week, but I want to dig right in as we start to consider how we can minister uh, concerning the topic of homosexuality, how we can minister to uh, people who are, who claim to be homosexuals or in the lifestyle. But I'm finding more and more you need to minister to people that aren't and, and don't feel they ever will be, but have inappropriate attitudes toward the topic and who therefore become satanic enablers for sin patterns and who weaken the church in its resolve to minister biblically. We need to just we need just a flood of truth here at every level, no matter where an individual is at on this topic. We need to just swim in the sea of truth. And I just it's so grievous to see the inroads that faulty thinking on homosexuality has made into the church, the evangelical church. And, and just there's only one answer, and that's a, a faithful ministry of the Word of God. The Word of God never changes. It's, you know, you think about the Ten Commandments. They're engraved in stone by the finger of God. You think about that. I mean, what does that say to you? You know, you think of the tablets of stone written, engraved in stone by the finger of God. What does that say? That's powerful. It's unchanging. And it's coming from God. Moses didn't come up with the the Ten Commandments. He carried them back down. But it was God that said them to his people, and they're timeless. It doesn't really matter what happens to the stone tablets. We know that Moses threw them down, and then God made other ones, and we don't know where those are either. That doesn't matter. The Word of God is living. It's still with us. We know what the Ten Commandments are because God wanted us to know them. And so in the same way, God has never changed his views on this. We are just so weak Sometimes and our, our we're so influenced by Satan's deceptions and lies. And so what we need to do is step in and we need just to to um, teach the word and be ready to tell the truth to people. And so we're right in the middle of the handout. Judy rightly pointed out it's the next. It's the same handout as last week. If you're say, wow, this looks very familiar. All right, you're not. It's not déjà vu. All right, but we did put out new ones because we know people don't always bring them. So I'm going to jump right in. I don't know what page it is for you but it says central message, you see that? Uh, What page is that on the handout? Six, Six. so for me it's page seven. Um, Central message, Christians must speak and live out the truth in love to minister effectively to the challenge posed by homosexuality in our age. We need to think the truth, we need to believe the truth, we need to speak the truth, live it out. That's what this world needs. And so that's what we're here to do. Um, and it's daunting, as we've seen, because of the concept of homophobia. Satan does all kinds of things to intimidate us, all kinds of things to get us to, uh, to back off. <clears throat> the gay rights movement, activists, uh, they're intimidating people. Um, and they are some of the angriest people that you're going to meet, those that are out in the streets demanding certain rights. Uh, they're, they're daunting. Um, they're, they're hard. They're hard to deal with and so they came up with this term homophobia I don't know where it came from I think there's some history behind it but the idea is that if you oppose homosexuality at any level there's something wrong with you that you're somehow defective uh, that you've got some kind of case of phobia there's some weirdness about you and you can see how shrewd the devil is in doing this Um, how Uh, we would consider, honestly, not just homosexuality, but all sin, all sin to be irrationality. It's insane. To oppose God and to oppose the word of God at any level is insanity. And thanks be to God, we're getting cured of it. And we're going to go to the New Jerusalem where there will be no insane people, no insanity at all, (laughs) including us. We'll be done with all of our insanity. We will not be be mentally ill anymore or ill in our hearts. We will be exactly conformed to the the health of Christ in every regard. And I actually think the therapeutic view of salvation is very helpful. Jesus is the great physician. He came to heal our bodies, but he also came to heal our hearts. And so any sin, including this one, is a form of irrationality or insanity. I'm, I'm saying it's, it's the sickness. Declaring biblical truth is never sick about any topic. It's not sick to say the truth. And so we just need to push that aside. Uh, the reason it's happened is that we acknowledge that some people, some even in the name of Christ, have been verbally abusive, physically abusive, criminally abusive. Active attacking people because they're gays. But you must know that doesn't say anything about the biblical truth of homosexuality at all. It just talks about those people and how evil they are. But we get lumped together with them so that if you oppose homosexuality, you're part of that tribe. You know, you would, you would do gay bashing if you, if you had a different personality, but you at least assent to it, agree with it, etc., and they just lump, lump them all together. And so that's just completely not valid. We have to actually somehow find a way to take the high ground and say, you know, you're what I, you want to know my fear. My fear is that you, my coworker, my relative, my friend are going to spend eternity in hell. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm I'm afraid of God on your behalf because you're not afraid of Him, but you should be. And so the fear of the Lord is constraining me, just like the love of the Lord, and I fear judgment day on your behalf. That's what evangelism does, not just with homosexuality. I'm fearful for you. You don't fear death like you should. I'm not afraid to die. You should be afraid to die. You should be because you're outside of Christ. And you're going to be condemned and I'm afraid on your behalf so I would just extend that in the same way with homosexuality I fear that we should I wouldn't say I fear it like I, sh- I, I should but that's biblically a right fear I'm, I'm I'm afraid on on their behalf but I'm not afraid of homosexuality uh, any more than I'm afraid of embezzlement I, I'm not embezzlophobia. um, you know kind of thing I, I think all sin is destructive so I wish that people who embezzled would stop doing it. Uh, you know, it's incredible, like, or, or shoplifting. Like, I think Walmart loses just hundreds of millions of dollars every year from employees who steal. I think that's very bad for the economy. Do I fear it? No, I'm not walking around in fear of that. And the same thing with homosexuality. I don't wake up, like, huh, in a cold sweat about gay issues, because I'm afraid I might actually be one. That's what they're doing, and they're trying to put us back on our heels. So we just have to cut through all that. And say, all right. Well, I want to know what does the Bible say. That's just Romans 4:3. We just come back again and again. What does the Scripture say? And that's what I want to do. So we're going to zero in on that. But I'm going to start with what I consider to be the most important uh, verse on this whole topic, and that's Romans 1:16, because it's the most important verse on any sin topic. Can someone read that for us? Uh, Romans 1:16. Very interesting how Paul says, some would say that that is the theme verse for the book of Romans, that Romans is the, is the clearest articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ from A to Z that you'll find in the Bible. I think that's probably true. And the gospel is uh, bigger and more complex and more comprehensive than we think it is. It covers sin at every level, all the way through justification, sanctification, glorification, they're all there. So Romans 1.16 says, this is what we're talking about, the gospel. But look how he begins. I'm not ashamed of it. What does that tell you? That's an interesting way for Paul to introduce the concept. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. What does that tell you? When I preached on this, I used in my typical mechanical engineering geeky way. The world has a shaming mechanism. It wants to make you ashamed of Jesus. Ashamed of the gospel. And Paul said, I'm not. I know you've tried. You've tried to make me ashamed by imprisoning me and by screaming things at me and by having riots around my message as though I'm somehow a troublemaker and an agitator and a wicked man. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel, not at all. Why not, not, Paul? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is the only thing that can save us sinners. It is a powerful thing to save sinners. Now, The word save, we understand it's a comprehensive work of the sovereign God to rescue those that are enslaved in Satan's dark kingdom, to rescue them. And when you look at the word power, it is a powerful thing to be rescued from sin. It takes power. It takes supernatural power. And God has entrusted that power to the words of the gospel. They are effective when combined with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not in and of themselves. Not apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But together, the power of the Holy Spirit plus the words of the Scriptures, the words of the gospel, together save souls. It's been doing it for 20 centuries. That includes people who are in the gay lifestyle. So that's why I chose this as the key verse. Fundamentally, what we want to see happen is we want to see people rescued from sin. All sin including this sin. And this gospel is the only thing that can do it. And not only that, the gospel does do it, will do it. And so we are excited about that. We are encouraged. Secondly, I'd like to commend 1 Peter three fifteen and 16. Someone read that for us, if you would. Thank you so much. Why would I say that this is a very important verse for us? Not just with gay ministry on the issue of homosexuality, but just in general as witnesses. Why is this an important verse? Yeah. I love it. I mean, the verses are all about getting the evangelist ready for the, the the work. It's focused on the on the messenger, the man or woman of God who's going to go out and gives lots of points of advice to that person, lots of them. Now, I did zero in specifically on one. Yeah, Donkey, go ahead, brother. I love it. There's so many things I could do with First Peter three right now. One, I love the word hope. I mean, you can't ever expect anyone to ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have if you're evidently hopeless. (laughs) So you need to be evidently, obviously, openly hopeful. Hope-filled. What does that mean? The future is bright. That's what I think. When I think of based on the promises of God, my future is bright. That's what biblical hope is. I am excited to go into the future. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of the rest of my life. I want to live the rest of my life and I want it to be as long as God wants it to be because then I can do the work of God in this world that I can't do in heaven. Time for that will be done in heaven, but I can work now. I can suffer now for Christ. I can do some things now. There are hard things, but I want to do them, but I'd rather be in heaven. And this is Philippians 1. I just to live as Christ, to die is gain. I want to be like that, but I want to just be so filled with excitement about life and no fear of death, but excitement about eternal life. And then people are going to be like, I'm not like you. I'm not filled with hope. Give me a reason. I could just keep going 1 Peter 3 here for a while. Let me make the point though, why I brought it in here. And you, you guys, a number of you have already alluded to it. This is so different from the whole homophobia, gay bashing thing. You're gonna treat somebody enslaved to this sin with gentleness and respect. You're gonna come at it gently. You're gonna say there is no difference between you and me in this regard. Both of us are sinners by nature and need a Savior, the same Savior, Jesus Christ. I've been set free from the curse of God, from the condemnation. I want you to be as well. There's that gentleness. And uh, just like you're saying about Rosaria Butterfield, the sense of attraction. You know how God says, I've led you with bands of human kindness. He says it in Hosea, I think. There's this sense of love and kindness. And then the word respect. Remember I talked about Genesis 1, Genesis 2. So in in the gender roles, First and foremost, the person's a human being, a human being created in the image of God, worthy of respect just as a human being. So you're not going to commit crimes against them and bash them and all that because God will not tolerate that because they're created in his image. Go ahead, Jay. It's just a tool in the toolbox. Richard Baxter said uh, in a typical Puritan way, God breaketh not all men alike. So break means break that stiff neck, that rebellion. He doesn't do it the same way in every case. So it could very well be the blood of martyrs is a seed for the church. Some, somebody who's bashing a humble street preacher six months later like Saul of Tarsus is like, why did I bash that person? And comes to faith in Christ that way. Jay, I don't deny it at all. I'm just saying it is a way that works. Uh, hospitality, it's not the only way. It's not the only tool in the toolbox. Right? right, let's keep going. 2 Corinthians 10, we must demolish poisonous, demonic, satanic arguments for the sake of the souls. They are enslaved in Satan's dark kingdom by arguments, by faulty thinking. There's a rational, or we know irrational, but there's an intelligence to Satan's dark reasoning. And so 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, someone read that for us, if you would. Wonderful. All right. Lots of things to say about that. But um, we are uh, at spiritual war, evangelism, missions is spiritual warfare. But our enemies are not flesh and blood. That's Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not with human beings, but with demonic powers. Now, Paul's not saying you don't... I mean, Paul had more human enemies than we can even imagine. He's not denying that. What he's saying is, ultimately, there's a demonic force behind them. And those human enemies can be one. They can be one. He's making a similar kind of argument. He said, what we're looking for, we're not trying to demolish people. We're trying to demolish arguments. And by arguments, he doesn't mean Arguing. Like, remember, there's a difference between having an argument and making an argument. Everybody has arguments, especially married couples, some of them anyway. (laughs) All right. Lawyers make arguments. So what do I mean when I say lawyers make arguments? Making a point, a logical point that proves a case. That's what we mean by making an argument. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. We're destroying Satan's case. We're destroying the logic and the reasoning behind the things he's saying. And, and the issue of homosexuality, he is making a case. And the case is persuasive to, to average Americans. And so we have to go and blow those things up. We have to speak the truth to them. That's what we're talking about. So, Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't have that. We really, Randy, I would say absolutely it's divine power. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. It's living and active. So you just have to learn to wield the sword of the Spirit. It's not easy to do. And I know that people are intimidated to get involved in evangelism because they think they don't know enough. I don't want to totally say that that's foolish. I think you can become a better evangelist the more you study the Word of God. I think you should become a better evangelist by studying the Word of God. So as you store up scriptures in your mind and heart, you will find that the Holy Spirit will use them, use them that you've stored up. And then if you are actually talking, you're going to end up talking to different categories of people. Oh, so we had, Joel and I are flying back, Joel Harford and I are flying back from Louisville, and I'm going to ask Tom, my secretary, do this every time if I'm traveling with somebody. Give me seat A, and Joel seat C and put someone between us. <laughs> we had two different people. We had a connecting flights. We had seat B, flight one, and seat B, flight two. Two different situations, two different people. I'm like Joel, let's not kill this guy. Like he went off to the, you know, the restroom. It's like All right, I think we're about done. <laughs> just give him a break. Let him read his magazine. You know, because <laughs> we were like tag teaming. But um, but anyway, just just they were just different in different places. I've spoken to ardent Muslims. I've spoken to scientific materialistic atheists that work for pharmaceutical companies. I've spoken to nominal Baptists that haven't been to church in a year. I mean, it's just who knows who you're gonna talk to. But if you should be talking to a lesbian uh, or talking to a, a gay rights activist, you're just gonna need a different set of tools. It's not the same in every case. And so if you're gonna demolish the arguments, you gotta get ready to do it. That's part of the reason for this class. So I don't mean to intimidate you, but I do mean to challenge you. It's not like, don't worry about it, just whatever happens, happens. I'm not saying that. Now, I do believe God, man, Christ's response is effective for everybody, and he can use that. But there are certain things that are locking people's brains down. They're locking their souls down, and they're just not able to hear God, man, Christ's response right now. You've got to just kind of pick the locks and get in there uh, to start working on some aspects. And that's what we're doing here. Um, so some questions we need to answer. Is homosexuality like any other sin, or is it different? So, quick answer: It's like any other sin in some ways, and it's different in other ways. So, we'll, we'll talk about that. But you know, it's the biggest aspect. It's like any other sin. And we'll say how, we'll say why, and etc. But number two: Why did God make sex and marriage? We're going to talk about that as we go on. Is there a way to make a biblical case for homosexuality? Absolutely, it's going on all the time. It's faulty. But that that question number three is similar to: Does Satan quote scripture? Yes, he does. He makes biblical arguments. But the arguments have to be refuted. Jesus did that in his temptation. Satan made an argument. Jesus refuted it and didn't do what Satan wanted him to do. So, yes, there are many biblical cases being made for homosexuality. Number four, it seems like Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Doesn't that prove he would support gay marriage? We're exactly about to go into that in a moment. So that's like the next thing we're going to do. Number five, aren't Christians inconsistent when they quote some Old Testament passages on homosexuality, but they don't hold to other commands in the Old Testament, you know? I had one guy say, do you eat, uh, do you eat shellfish? I said, no, I hate it. <laughs> He's like, well, that's not what I mean. It's like, all right, but that was a fun moment for me. I love that one. <laughs> He's so frustrated. I knew I was going to frustrate him too. Do you eat shellfish? No. <laughs> but I have the freedom to, if I didn't hate it. Anyway, uh, we'll get into all that. Number six. Um, How should a a healthy church deal with this issue like this? We're going to keep talking about all these things. What is same-sex attraction? It's very controversial. A lot of people have issues. The genetic side, is there a genetic predisposition or proclivity? Do we need to even know that? I mean, are, are there some things we have to deal with on that? Number eight, can the gospel transform someone's sexual orientation? Number nine, how can we as Christians best face the surrounding culture, which is increasingly and aggressively pro-homosexual. Number 10. What about harder cases of transgender, sex change, all those kind of things, ever-increasing aspects of this question? When I wrote this list three years ago, transgender wasn't anywhere near as discussed as it is now. So it's much, much more going on. So these are some things and others we're going to try to answer in the weeks we have left, which is not many. But let's start with Christ. Start with Christ. And uh, people just misuse Jesus. Jesus. I mean, they're going to, it's just amazing how people on all areas of the American religious scene are going to cite Jesus, quote Jesus, point to Jesus, etc. Robert Gagnon, who's done a lot of good work on this topic, said this, when Christians find a specific teaching of one or more New Testament authors to be unappealing, Jesus is often held up as a counterweight for example, if many New Testament writers emphasized hierarchical structures in their theology, church polity, and domestic arrangements, Jesus did away with hierarchy. If New Testament writers were disinclined to invert the social order, Jesus proclaimed an ethic that fully included women, sinners, and physically challenged, and Gentiles. If New Testament writers surrendered to the bourgeois material interests of their own day, Jesus put a premium on social justice to the poor. If New Testament writers were intolerant of non-traditional forms of sexual expression, Jesus elevated tolerance to the level of a core value, especially in the area of sexual ethics. Given such constructs, it's understandable that many proponents of same-sex relationships put a positive spin on the silence of Jesus as regards homosexual behavior. Some combine this silence on the subject with Jesus' embrace of sinners and emphasis on love and conclude that Jesus would not have criticized responsible and loving expressions of homosexual and lesbian conduct. It's just good to know all that, how Jesus gets used. And sometimes Jesus gets pitted against Paul, you know, or pitted against other writers. And it's like, don't don't let that happen. We need to understand that whatever the apostles said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, they said it as Christ's messengers. That Jesus sent, like we're going to even see it in the text today. I, Jesus, sent my angel to write the scripture effectively. That's what he's saying. So, what you read in the book of Revelation, Jesus is saying that to the churches, saying it all. And so, we can't just let them do that. I'm going to keep going, Craig, unless it's really important, because I don't have a lot of time. Yeah, hyper red letterism. I never heard of that, but I think I know what you mean. Yeah, I do. right yeah absolutely i mean just think of the phrase in romans 8 the spirit of christ the spirit of christ was in the prophets. spirit of christ was in the apostles you don't want to pit the red letters against the black letters all right so let's just keep going simple assertion jesus never directly addressed homosexuality that's true but what should we make of that should we assume, given the overwhelming evidence of clear opposition to homosexuality in, Jesus, or in Jewish society in Jesus' day, that silence meant that Jesus would have overturned all those convictions? I think that's pretty faulty. It's not like, you know, first century Judaism was like 21st century Berkeley, California. I mean, we should not imagine that or some other liberal spot. It's not like there was a massive pro-gay movement going on in downtown Jerusalem in the days of the Apostle Paul. So we would not think... We, it's like it's wrong to take our situation and put it back then. There's some key factors here. Number one, understood in the context of first century Judaism, it's very unlikely that Jesus would have adopted a fundamentally different stance on same-sex intercourse, especially given uh, Jesus' basic approach to Mosaic law. So, I mean... If we're just going to argue from silence, we need to do that both sides. It is an argument because we don't have anything either way. So we're, I think the preponderance of evidence would have been on the opposite side, honestly. Secondly, Jesus' appeal to Genesis one twenty-seven and 2.24, which we're about to get to in just a moment, in his teaching on divorce, confirms his embrace of an exclusively heterosexual model of monogamy. And we're going to see that in Matthew 19 in just a moment. Three, Jesus' position on other matters having uh, to do with sexual ethics, were generally more, not less, rigorous than those of his surrounding culture. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, men, if you're even looking at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Which, by the way, is exactly the same ethic of the Tenth Commandment anyway. uh, uh, Prohibition against coveting is a matter of the heart. And Jesus just took that and extended it to sexual ethics, saying, God is looking at your heart. So, the point of number three that's being made here is Jesus wasn't a liberalizing force on sexual ethics, not at all. He was wanting purity straight through, holiness. Number four, the ways in which Jesus integrated demands for mercy and righteous conduct in his teaching and ministry do not lend support for the view that Jesus might have taken a positive or neutral approach to same-sex intercourse. He's not loosening things up. I mean, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, anyone who practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever looses even a single one of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's not like come to make everything loose and and free-flowing. Not at all. He came to fulfill the law which flowed from the heart of God. Now, I know that, that we've got to do some work on the law. I understand there are dietary regulations. There's commandments on circumcision. There's requirements for the Jews to make three times a year a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I understand all that. You need to face all that. Uh, but we Christians are used to dealing with those questions. Maybe we haven't sharpened the arguments, but we know that there are Old Testament regulations that we don't need to keep. We've understood that. We've read the book of Galatians. We understand what happened with circumcision. So we just need to be ready to make that argument. We understand there are laws that were fulfilled when Jesus came. The barrier, the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles was removed and then not needed anymore. God did set it up. He did set up the dietary regulations. He did set up circumcision, but then he fulfilled it and removed it. Made it obsolete. I can say the word obsolete because the author of Hebrews said it's obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, obsolete. That's a good word. Amen? Obsolete. Those... uh, Ceremonial regulations that separated Jew from Gentile religiously are obsolete. They've been fulfilled. Time is done. All right, we'll get into all that. And let's dig in now to Matthew 19. This is actually where I always begin my premarital counseling. So, they, you know, we get to know each other, and then we go to the teaching on divorce. <laughs> like, so gloomy. I thought we were going to be positive here and all that. But the funny thing is, it is a question about divorce, but it's a teaching about marriage. That's really what it is. He answers the question about divorce by teaching positively about marriage. And in his teaching positively on marriage, we have themes that are going to be relevant for homosexuality, though he does not directly talk about homosexuality. What he lays down from Genesis uh, 1 and 2 is vital. All right, let me read it. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. All right, so there's a lot of things we could say here. First, I, want to make, uh, I just want to make a statement about Scripture. This is a very important statement that I want to make about Scripture. It's something that you probably would not notice in 50 readings of this, but that's where skillful theologians come along to show us some things that, that are helpful. All right? Jesus' view of Scripture is foundational here. I mean, Jesus is quoting Scripture all the time. Now here he's quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis two. All right? Look what he says in verse four. By the way, they come to ask a question about divorce. What is his procedure? He takes them to Scripture. Haven't you read? He does this a lot. So it's right for me in premarital counseling to take the couple to Scripture. And uh, not just any Scripture, but haven't you read that at the beginning? So we'll go to the beginning of Scripture. We'll go to the beginning of the human race, the account in Genesis. So what Jesus is thinking here is that how God set it up at the beginning is normative. Doesn't matter what the Supreme Court decides, five to four. Doesn't make a difference if they decided it nine to zero. What God set up in the beginning is relevant for the rest of human history. That's just an important thing to know, but that's not even my point right now. Haven't you read... Red means in scripture, like on the scroll, that at the beginning, the creator, number one, like one with a circle around it, made them male and female. And number two, and said. That's very interesting. So the creator does two things. He makes them and talks about them. You see that? He makes them and talks about them. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Where is that? That's Genesis 2.24. Now, let's go right to what Craig was talking about before, the red letter edition. I actually have a red letter Old Testament. Very few of you have a red letter Old Testament. All right, so by the same mentality of those that like to put Jesus' words in red, what words would you put in red in the Old Testament? Whenever God is quoted, right? So, for example, let me give you a, a, a test on black or red, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Black or red? Thank you. <laughs> this is why I don't do it, but anyway, black. And God said, quote, let there be light. And God said, black, let there be light. Red, okay? See what I'm, You see what I'm getting at? It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Red. Thank you. We're getting it. We're we're coming along. All right. And God put the man in the garden to serve it and take care of it. Black. Good. All right. Does anyone have a paper Bible? Do we even have them anymore? Did anyone bring a paper Bible? All right. Craig's got one. All right. I want you to look up. Sword drill. I want you to look up Genesis 224. And tell me black or red. Read it first. All right. Well, here's what happens. Let me just kind of run up to it. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Red. Um, So God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. Black. Um, And he takes a rib out of the man and forms a woman out of it. Black. All right. He brings her to the man. And the man says, this is now bone of my bones. All right. What color should that be? Black. Black. Thank you. All right. It was a quote by the man, but not by God. All right. You know, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That's the run up right to the verse, right? Black, 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 black. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Friends, that's black. It's just narrative. It's Moses, it's whoever wrote it. Now let's go back to Matthew 19. The Creator does two things. Number one, He makes them male and female, and then He makes a statement about them. And said, Do you see that? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He said it through Moses, but he said it. Do you see it? Every word of the Bible is the creator's statement. So get rid of the black, red. I'm not saying get rid of your black or your red letter edition Bibles. You pay good money for them, keep them. But what I'm saying is the mentality is not helpful. The creator made a timeless statement about marriage there. That's Jesus's way of thinking. And so it doesn't make a difference what the United States Supreme Court says about marriage. God's never gonna change his mind, ever. Well, let's keep on going. What does he say? First of all, the Creator made them male and female. There are not eight options on gender, friends, (laughs) okay? (laughs) I mean, I'm not even keeping up with it. I don't know if you need to get a periodical like, uh, you know, or go to a blog we're going to go to from nine to ten sometime in the first six months of the next year. I'm losing track. It's a malleable, plastic, kind of constantly evolving thing. No, it's not. It's not that in Jesus' mind. It's not in the Creator's mind. The Creator made the male and female. That's it. And so, and Jesus quoted that. So, yes, Jesus doesn't directly address homosexuality, but he addresses it here. What he's saying is that male and female is relevant for marriage. That's what we're talking about right here in Matthew 19. We're talking about marriage. So, the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man, male, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, female, and the two will become one flesh. So, there's a sexual side to it. Uh, the one flesh union. That's what makes marriage different than any other relationship there is. You can have lots of friendships. You can have brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's that one flesh union that's unique to marriage, and we're going to hold it as holy. The marriage bed should be undefiled, held pure. So that's what Jesus is doing here. I do not I think it's like checkmate, done deal. Jesus said gender is relevant for marriage. It's one man, one woman, in a one flesh union for life. And for life comes... When he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You don't have the right to undo the covenant that that, that you made before God, but that God brought you together to make. So what is the question Jesus is seeking to answer here? It's right there in verse 3. What question is he trying to answer? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, for any cause? Different ways to interpret that, but for whatever reason there may be. Now, later he gives the exception concerning sexual immorality, adultery, breaks the, the, uh, the covenant, and is lawful ground for a, do- a divorce. There are others, but I'm not getting into all that right now. So, other than that, it's you and, and your spouse, you and your wife, because we're focused on men here, you and your wife for life. And the disciples got it, by the way. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. So it's better not to get married, right? I mean, let's keep free, all right? Better not to get married. And Jesus said, not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it is given. Do you see? It's a gift. It's what we generally call the gift of singleness. So if you have that gift of singleness, then it's better for you not to get married. That's the very thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. If you have that gift and you're not needing, you know, sexually not needing a wife, it's better to stay free. And it's better for the woman to stay free of of the man so that both of them can be in undivided uh, service to Christ. There's a practical side. But we know that in real life, very few people percentage-wise have that gift of singleness, very few. I mean, most people have the normal desires and drives and God blesses them in that regard. So, uh, to me, this is very, very clear. Let's look at some of the implications. Jesus answers a question on divorce by, getting, by giving positive teaching about the nature of marriage. Divorce is the death of a sick marriage. Jesus addresses the question by defining a healthy marriage. He deals with sin by establishing the true pattern. He would do the same with gay marriage as well, which doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's not possible in Jesus' structure here. Scripture is sufficient to answer every question. Haven't you read? All the scriptures God-breathed. So the Scripture is sufficient. By the way, just hold on to that. Scripture is sufficient. You don't need Robert Gagnon's book. You don't need Rosaria Butterfield's book. You you need Scripture. You just need to be scriptural on this, and that's enough. We don't need a 67th book of the Bible. One of the things I'm about to preach in a few minutes, Jesus said, I think it's for the whole Scripture, not just the book of Revelation. Do not take away from the words of God and do not add to the words of God. So basically, this is a complete set now. It's a complete set. We don't need anything more. So isn't that marvelous? Only God could do that. Know every word that the human race will need. It's all found here. So Jesus, you you should not say, I wish Jesus had just clearly said what he thought about homosexuality. We don't need that. If we had needed it, he would have given it. This is enough, and the words of the apostle Paul are enough. All right, so marriage is ordained by God from the beginning. Marriage is a good gift of God. It is temporary. Yes, it's lifelong, but still temporary. You will not be married in heaven. In in one sense, you will be. In one sense, you'll be super married in heaven. You'll also be super married to a great multitude of people in heaven. All right, you will be one with every, every believer from every tribe, language, people, and nation from every era of church history. You'll be perfectly one as the Father and the Son are one. You'll be one with Jesus. So that is the consummation of the themes of marriage in heaven. But you're not going to be paired off and won't be procreating in heaven. That's all done. We'll be like the angels, Jesus said. So it's a temporary gift, a good gift, and it was made by God. The same God who created the universe, who created the human race, made marriage. The same God who made marriage defines it and describes it at the beginning for all human history. Do you not see that? Like if we could get all nine Supreme Court justices here, I want to say, right here in the front, God defines marriage, not you. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but they have done our country a disservice. They have hurt souls in our country. All right, so the same God who made marriage defines it and describes it. Now, I want to say this. I don't think we ultimately can win this battle apart from the scripture. If, If you say, Set the Scripture entirely aside. Make your arguments based on sociology, psychology, biology, legal jurisprudence, history. We're not going to win that case. Scripture alone, that's our home base. That's our foundation that doesn't move. We need to keep proclaiming the truth and living out the truth. Not being disrespectful to the Supreme Court or anybody else, but say, The Creator made them male and female and brought them together, one man, one woman, in covenant relationship for life. That's not going to change. And it's a good thing. That's that's our home base. Does that make sense? The Scripture is sufficient for for us. We don't need anything else. I'm not saying I'm grateful for brothers and sisters in Christ who are really experts at legal history on marriage. and all. I'm glad for the things they can tell me. It's helpful, I guess. But ultimately, we're going to fight by Scripture. Marriage is the first human relationship and still the most significant. There's no other relationship as significant as marriage. Uh, The health or disease of a culture, nation, and deed of the world is connected to the health or disease of marriage. Now, having said that, we know that marriages are diseased. Every marriage, even the best marriage, even the best marriage between a godly man and godly woman is still sick at some level, compared to the heavenly purity and perfection, compared to the unity of the Father and the Son. You know what I'm saying is true. But we have a goal, and we know we're moving toward it. We're moving toward that unity that Jesus prays for in in John 17, that they may be one as the Father and the Son are one. That's a goal for every godly Christian marriage. So uh, the health of churches, the health of a community based on, on marriage. Gender is relevant to marriage. Therefore, Matthew 19 is relevant to this topic. Even though he doesn't mention homosexuality in Matthew 19, it's relevant. All right, Jesus immediately discusses gender. God made the male and female. Gender is completely relevant then to the question of marriage. This teaching by Jesus is so clear that it rules out male, male, or female, female marriage. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, as I've said before. By the way, this is exactly where I got part one, part two aspect of premarital counseling. And the same thing with dealing with gay people, okay? Genesis 1, they're human, they're in the image of God, therefore you don't bash them. So that makes, that makes sense? Treat them with respect. Treat them with kindness. If they're injured, lying by the side of the road, save their biological or physical lives because they're human. Same thing within marriage. The most important thing about your wife is that she's a human being created in the image of God. So that rules out any kind of abuse. Rules it out. But then Genesis 2 There are gender-based roles. Adam was alone for a while and named the animals alone. And it was not good for him to remain alone. All of that, that comes from Genesis 2. Therefore, you can see, and you get this right from Jesus' statement. He pulls from Genesis 1, and then he pulls from Genesis 2. And I love that, and that just shaped my approach to premarital counseling. It's just very helpful. I think it should shape our approach also to... Uh, dealing with homosexual people in evangelistic settings. Treat them with respect, treat them with kindness, treat them as human beings. But then we're going to talk about the rest. All right, so Genesis 1 is the big picture, and the equality of the sexes as uh, both in the image of God. But then Genesis 2 is the detail of marriage, how a husband and wife should relate. And it is a detail. Still, it's true even for married couples. The most important thing about you is not that you're a husband or that you're a wife. most important thing about women, even on Mother's Day, is not that they're mothers. All right, That really guards your heart against oh, excessive grief at the loss of a godly spouse. If you're a widow, your life hasn't ended because your husband's in heaven now. You, are, you have a, a valuable, important life for the rest of your life, whatever God wants to do. You're a valuable person, even now as a single person. You know what I'm saying. There's a comfort in that in knowing that the most important thing about you is not that you're married or that you're a mother or a father. So it's a detail, important, but still. All right, so the timeless command, uh, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. By the way, I was just thinking about this verse in reference to Samson. All right, Samson's a strange dude. Judges is a strange book. And do you remember when he got married, Samson got married, and he posed a riddle, remember, and they're trying to solve the riddle? And his wife's begging him to tell what the answer to the riddle is. And do you remember what his answer is? I haven't told my parents. Why should I tell you now? Just think that through with me. Okay. What's wrong with that statement? Look at Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Is there a problem? Like what's the, what's the logic of, I haven't even told my parents. Why should I tell you? What are your thoughts on that? This is a total aside here. I shouldn't be doing this right now, but Jeff, what's the problem with that? Yeah, I'm like, Samson, Samson. I mean, he's just an interesting guy. I don't know what to make of him. Let's move on from Samson. Not a paragon of virtue in the area of marriage. Um, Marriage is the two becoming one flesh. Jesus says it twice. So they are no longer two, but one. I can just tell you right now, the mystery of the Trinity is the unity part. Not the threeness, but the oneness. That's the, the part we really don't understand. That's the part where our circuit breakers just trip. Where we're, how is it we don't worship three gods? Well, we don't. We are taught, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. In three persons. It's something we have a real hard time understanding. But the more you ponder that and understand, like Philippians 2, that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought, that, that you would be united in, in all of your intentions and, and all that, that heads toward understanding the unity of the Trinity. And yet you've got the separate uh, persons in some way, if you can even use the word separate. And if you meditate on that, then you can see what a healthy marriage looks like. It's like, oh Lord, would you make me and my wife, me and my husband, you know, my spouse, would you make us as one as the Father and the Son are one. Help us to just think alike, love alike, have the same purpose in everything. That's just a beautiful picture of unity in marriage. That's a good goal for a Christian marriage. So one, But then the word flesh shows, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, just the uniqueness of marriage being that uh, bonding of, of bodies, the flesh. By the way, Paul quotes that in reference to why you shouldn't go to a prostitute, a temple prostitute, because if you are united with her sexually, you become one flesh with her. It's, just, it's a mind blower. He actually reaches for Genesis 2.24 in reference to a casual visit to a temple prostitute. It wasn't casual. There's was nothing casual about it at all. You became one flesh with her. It, to some degree, it's like you married that woman and now you're ripped apart. I mean, just the whole thing's corrupt. He's making that argument in 1 Corinthians 6 for sexual purity. So, God, uh, Jesus' clear command what God has joined together, let man not separate. God makes marriages. Humans don't have the right to sever what God has joined. In the same way, humans don't have the right to redefine marriage to uh, to suit our desires. We don't have that authority to redefine things. That's where Isaiah says, Woe to you who call darkness light and light darkness, who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. We can't redefine things. All right, ethical note. The church's weak recent history on divorce has led to a slow eroding of biblical teaching on marriage in general. It is hypocritical for the church to be vigorously anti-gay marriage, but tolerant of unbiblical divorce. I think that's a helpful thing to meditate on. Upholding true biblical standards of marriage in general is the best approach to this specific issue of gay marriage. So again, we want to not just speak the truth, but live out the truth. So you've got watching, if you have minor children in your home, they're watching your marriage and and you're teaching them what heterosexual biblical marriage looks like. (coughs) Jesus' general teaching on sexual immorality says, I tell you that anyone who divorces a wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And then in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes uh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean." So sexual immorality, all this comes from the heart. Homosexuality is a heart issue. And so we want to see how God can heal and transform the heart. So I'm going to stop here. Uh, The next topic is uh, Old Testament teaching on homosexuality. There's a lot for us to cover on that. What I want to do now is just open it up to questions, comments, anything. I mean, we've just swum in the sea of Matthew 19, Jesus' view on marriage and all that. Not just so that we can address homosexuality, but so you guys can go home and have a healthy marriage. So, any comments or questions you may have about this? I understand. I think that's hard. I would say categorically, the hardest people to reach on planet Earth are unregenerate church members. People have been coming for decades, hearing the gospel, but they're unregenerate. What what can you say to them? So, Kim, what I'd want to know is: Is this person who's claiming to be a Christian are they really born again? If they're really born again, there's a hope that they might be persuaded by biblical truth and that the Holy Spirit within them, they have an anointing, it says. If they're really born again, they have an anointing and they know the truth. It could be they've just never been taught the truth clearly from the Bible. So that's what this BFL is is for. So if they're regenerate, one of the key proofs for them will be they will rise up and embrace biblical truth. They'll not fight it. They'll actually embrace it. Let's say, you know, I'd, I'd not thought about it from that perspective. I think that's helpful. And you'll see a melting or a yielding. But if instead they, they're stubborn and they fight, there is such a thing as an unregenerate church member or a false professor of Christianity. And I think they're starting to prove it. When you show clear verses on homosexuality from Romans chapter one, and Paul is very clear about it. We're going to get there. But he's he's not leaving to your imagination what he's talking about, both from the male side and the female side. It's right there. And you show it to them, and they're like, well, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. It's like, well, I think to some degree, maybe not ultimately, but to some degree they've just passed judgment on themselves. And I'm saying they're categorically going to be some of the hardest people you'll ever try to persuade. I don't know what you should keep doing. You've shown them Romans. They're not interested. They're not melted by. So, Lord, thank you for uh, this time to talk together. Thank you for the the topic. I just pray, uh, give us courage, uh, Lord, to speak the truth in love. Help us to fear on behalf of other people who are not fearing for their souls. And not just in homosexuality, help us to fear for lost people who are under the wrath of God. John 3, 36, they're continuing every day under the wrath of God. Help us to fear on their behalf and bring them by the power of the Holy Spirit into a healthy fear. As it says, 'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." I pray that that we would be instruments in that. And now as we go to corporate worship, fill us with your Holy Spirit to be able to to bring a a sacrifice of praise worthy
0: of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org.